Sometimes we miss what's right under our noses. As a podcaster, I'm constantly looking for ideas and guests. I ask friends for ideas and names. The other day, I realized that I was missing an award-winning, well-published author who works in my building. Raymond Atkins joins us today. Many listeners know him as the author of the novels, The Front Porch Prophet, Sorrowwood, Camp Redemption, and others. And some would know him as a nonfiction writer as well. Join us as we talk writing and creativity with Ray Atkins. Welcome to you, Raymond Atkins of Rome, Georgia. I'm very happy to be here. How are you today? I am great. Am I right to say you live in Rome, Georgia? I do live in Rome on the banks of the mighty Etowah. Okay. Um, is that your your hometown? Is that where you were raised? Uh, no, I've been here about 35 years. My wife and I moved here uh, right after we graduated from uh, college. Because okay. We got jobs here. Okay. Right. Let me start by saying that Ray Atkins works in my building because he teaches English part-time, although, as he's told me uh, online, for the most part, at Dalton State College. But he also teaches in the Master of Fine Arts program at Reinhardt University in Waleska. Am I saying that right? It is indeed in Waleska. Waleska. Let me also start by confessing that I asked some friends for the questions they would want to ask Ray and both of them are big fans of his. So we'll start with the, how did you get into the Raymond Atkins successful author? <laughs> how did that happen? Well, I'll let you know when I arrived there. Okay. Um, <laughs> I didn't really start writing seriously, I guess, until I was about 50. I'd always wanted to write a book, write a novel, we're always intending to do that, but life kind of happened in the, in the meantime. My wife and I, we had four children, mm. took a lot to feed them and clothe them and get them to college. So really, I turned around and I was pushing 50, but I figured if I was going to do it, I needed to go ahead and get started. So once the kids all left home, I got up and got I figured that was the time for me to go. So, so I started writing my first one, The Front Porch Prophet. Uh, it was published when I was 53. Mm -hmm. I'm 68 now. Matter of fact, I turned 68 yesterday. So. Oh, happy late. So I've been, I've been an author for 15 years. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> That's kind of funny because my first novel was published 15 years ago this year, too. So. However, you must have been doing a lot. I mean, nobody just pops out and says, I'm a novelist, especially a successful one who won Georgia Novelist of the Year, first novelist of the year uh, back then. So what was behind all that? I just always have been fascinated with the way that Southerners conduct themselves. <laughs> um, I've always loved the gentle society style constructs and the 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 way that people interact and how despite where you go or who you might run into you find certain types of people 
And I think that's a lot to do with the fact that although my uh, accent would, would end to uh, disagree, I'm not a I'm not a born Southerner. Oh, I'm, wow. actually, I'm actually a transplanted Yankee. My father was in the military, and I spent my my young years on a variety of SAC bases, strategic air command bases, pretty much in, in every uh, desolate spot you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I was a young teenager that, and he retired, that we moved to Valleyhead, Alabama. And I think the fact that I was raised in a different culture turned me into a, into a natural observer because I was, uh-huh. trying to figure out the, I was trying to figure out the rules. Um, as you as, as you know, as a communication person, you got to figure out how you deal with things. And while watching and observing, I just kind of started picking stuff up, and that became the the material for my book. Mm-hmm. So okay, that's that's interesting. Yeah, that that you're not coming at it as someone who was always immersed in it, but in your young adult years, you had to figure it out. And I was the same way. I was not raised here, and so when I came to this part of the country, the more I got around people who were always bathed in it, had always lived here, the more I realized, wow, this is kind of different. <laughs> It's not just the accent; it's more to it than that. Yeah, it's not. It's not the accent. It's not. It's neither better nor worse than any place else. It's just different, and you have to pay attention, or you're always going to be the outlier, the person who's not quite in there. Right. Yeah. I have enough trouble with anyone. <laughs> so what? What was it? When did, when did your writing start? I, I retired um, from where I was working, had been working for a long time uh, when I was 50. Mm-hmm. Uh, with, the intent, with the intent of going back to school and getting my master's degree. Oh. Okay, let's, let's back up here, though. I mean, okay. before you were 50, you didn't do any writing to speak of? No, no. Uh, oh, my word. So you really did just sort of blossom. In your early uh, um, yeah, I guess you could say that. I guess so. Um, the reason I went back to get my master's degree is after discussing my great plan to become a rich, famous author, my wife said, well, hey, you better get a, a master's degree so you can teach college while you're becoming rich and famous. <laughs> and it turns, out, it turns out that that was a real good idea she had. And, and, Smart. And so, okay. Is that when you went, went to, to Kennesaw, uh, Kennesaw State? Kennesaw, yeah, okay. Uh, they had that MAPW program. Mm-hmm. I applied to Kennesaw State for the MAPW, and I applied to Georgia State for their MFA program. Mm-hmm. And one of them accepted me, and one of them didn't. Uh, so that, that's why I went where I went. Okay. Okay. Well, I, I'll take that back. Georgia State accepted me as well, but they wanted me to take all of my undergraduate English classes again. I said, you know, <laughs> I get a shorter drive <laughs> and yeah. I have to do all that. So I ended up going to Kansas. You wouldn't have to go down No downtown Atlanta. I did the downtown Atlanta thing and no, not for me. Okay, that's fascinating. So in the MAPW, I know someone else who's done that program. 
is it like an, an MFA or is it more geared towards business oriented? It's more geared towards the practical aspects of writing. It's more geared toward if you want a higher level job in writing, hmm. this is a real good credential to slap out there in front of you when you're interviewing for the job. Okay. And they taught me some pretty good skills that I've mostly not used because I haven't really done any, what do you call it, practical writing, technical writing, those kinds of things. Oh, I see. Most, most of I wanted a master's degree so I could teach college. Okay. A couple of, sometimes I've had to explain what an MAPW is or talk my way in there, even though I didn't have the coveted MFA. But mm-hmm. usually a writing sample and a, and a good interview will get you right on in there in front of the students. Mm-hmm. I've been very satisfied with my Kennesaw career. So you must have read a lot when you were younger. And so who were your favorite writers, people you sort of touched on with? I've always been a big, big reader. Some of the people that I think really influenced uh, my own writing. John Irving, he was a big one. I can see that. I can see that. Yeah, I'll, I'll, it's almost like it's metafiction in that he's commenting upon the fiction to you, the reader, as he's writing the fiction. Uh-huh. Yeah. Hunter Thompson. Uh, his his okay. was just amazing. Pat Conroy, of course, mm-hmm. uh, because you're going to write anything Southern, you have to be acquainted. There is an author called Martin Cruz Smith who writes a detective series about a uh, detective who works in Moscow for the FSB or KGB, whatever they call themselves over there now. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh, that's one that I really like. Several that I, I really, I really feel like I owe maybe a bit of a debt of gratitude, but really showing me, okay, it's okay to do this kind of writing. It's okay to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, can't remember the man's name, Blood Meridian, Sutri. Oh, right. Cormac McCarthy. Yes. I, yeah. I love the way he always broke the rules. He, uh-huh. Uh, if he turned in uh, a paper to me after I was just amazed and 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 just out of my breath, I'd have to give him a C minus or a D plus because he does not follow the rules of grammar. But he doesn't <laughs> need he doesn't need to. Yeah. Uh, William Faulkner. Uh, I like Faulkner's stuff, particularly when he wasn't trying to be Faulkner. Uh, mm-hmm. He got a little bit rough when, when he was trying to be there. John Steinberg was an amazing writer. Um, mm-hmm. I remember reading some of uh, the Grapes of Wrath when I was like eight or nine years old. Thinking, wow. Okay. Surely, surely not, but surely yes. That, that, that's the way things were. So, mm-hmm. There have been many that I've liked, but I've always liked to read, and I'll read something that's not important just because I read something that did. Mm-hmm. Well, you must have been pretty precocious if you were reading The Grapes of Wrath at eight or nine years old. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't, want, I wouldn't have wanted to deal with me. Uh, my, fa- my, my father was a scoundrel and a rogue. My mother was a big reader. And so I picked up my reading habits from her. And 
if she had it and she got through with it, she'd hand it to me and say, here, try this. So um, I owe her a debt of gratitude for, for keeping them coming, so to speak. Mm-hmm. They weren't always child appropriate, but no. yeah. I guess I got past it. <laughs> uh, it's it's interesting you you state your your father was in the military and you traveled all over and you mentioned Pat Conroy and he of course writes a great deal about that you know um, yeah. having been in the military and not saying much good about it but I don't believe any of your books are about that about growing up in the military brat kind of family. No, Sarawood uh, touches briefly on the, mm-hmm. the military. Circa World War II and uh, the Korean War. Yeah. But no, I haven't. Um, and there may be one to come. But you landed on a pretty interesting point in that, in that I do write what, what I call autobiographical fiction to a great uh-huh. extent. If you okay. see it in one of my books, it pretty much has happened to me or else I heard about it. Okay. <laughs> well, that's interesting. In fact, that brings me to one of the questions. I'll just go in here. One of your big fans, whom I don't think you know, maybe you do. In fact, this person's in my writer's group. He's going to shoot me for, I won't say his name. And he actually thought about, seriously, about going to the MFA program where you teach, even though he's my age, we'll just put it that way. And he's he really thought about doing your program because of you, <laughs> not because of the... <laughs> Not because of the others, I guess. He wanted to know, how do you hear a character's voice in an authentic way? Your characters each have a very specific feel, and you keep them consistent. Are there specific notes you use to keep them within their own character? It's, or it's just in your mind as you write? And do you interview someone like a meth dealer you know, and to get the dialect right and all that. So what, you know, and, and I would say reading, uh, I'm starting Sorrowwood and I've read Front Porch Prophet and pieces of other things. And I was just like, yeah, you know, <laughs> and it's funny. Uh, the first part part of Sorrowwood where he's the police officer is uh, Blackman is interviewing those two guys with the dog fight. <laughs> it was so funny. It was sad, of course. And then when but it was it was funny. So how do you do that? How do you get that character voice thing right? Because obviously you do. Well, a lot of the dialect and a lot of the cadence, a lot of slow response and the considered response that I use in my dialogue comes from my wife's uh, late grandmother. Uh, she was Granny Auntie. And she died when she was 98, and she was pissed because she didn't make it to 100, because that was one of her goals, was to make it to 100. <laughs> when I first started coming around, my wife's family, she, she took a shine to me, Granny Auntie, I guess she liked me. She, she said I was cunning, and I still don't know what that means, but I would listen to her talk, because if, if you would listen to her talk, she would literally talk to you for hours. And she would tell these long, meandering, digressional, complicated stories. And about 45 or 50 minutes into one, you'd say, yeah, she's lost the thread. She's never going to get back. And then, damn, if 
another few minutes pass by and here she'd be coming around the corner and she'd bring it on home. <laughs> I used to always love that because to me that's how I call it southern digressional, which I'm sure is not original for me. Somebody else must have said it. That's how I try to write, particularly with, with my characters of a certain age. Because it's authentic. That is truly how they talk. As for just the regular voices, uh, most of my male characters have at least some indebtedness to me for how they sound because I write what I know and, and, and this is how I talk. Uh, females. Uh, my wife and her four sisters provide a lot of that material. They're pretty much five peas in the pod. They're very uh, intelligent, charming, opinionated people <laughs> who make for good for, for good uh, material. I just listen. I just listen to what people say. And if I hear something that is truly remarkable, which you hear every day, if you just listen, that I will jot down. And I'll just remember it by. Um, and, and, and that is where my so do you ever find where, that you do have to interview somebody to get to get more to know about a character? The only time I have ever had to interview somebody was in uh, one of my stories. It wasn't Sandwich. It wasn't Camp Redemption. I'm having a, a senior moment. Remember, I just turned 68. But in that in that book, which will come to me in a minute, uh, the main character has to go to prison for a little while. Mm -hmm. And uh, because I had no clue about what it's like to go to prison for a little while, that one night in the Menlo, Georgia jail, long, long ago, I didn't figure it counted. And uh, that's a whole other story anyway. I did interview a, a parole felon uh, who, for the, for the price of a carton of Marlboro's, uh, told me everything I wanted to know <clears throat> about what it's like to be in the Georgia prison. Mm -hmm. And he talked, and he talked. I honestly think nobody ever listened to it. Yeah. Because he talked forever. Um, but that's where my material came from. That's really the only structured interview that I had ever done leading up to a book. And you think it doesn't bother me that I can't remember the name of my own book, the fourth book? <laughs> <laughs> It'll come to me in a minute. I've forgotten names of characters, too, so, you know. Listeners, I love doing this podcast. I hope deeply that you also enjoy listening. As we bring this content free of charge, I have some requests that will help it continue. We have exceeded 2,000 listens for the 24 Yes and 30 episodes. That doesn't include the YouTube listens. And none of it would have happened without Clemencia Villafuerte, our producer. I have to say that. I depend on her a great deal. In some ways, that number's great because I don't do much advertising or promotion. I depend on listeners to repost on social media and for the guests to post the links on their websites. On the other hand, it's really pretty low as the podcast world goes. Really, really low. So I can't monetize it, at least not yet. That's good and bad. 
you all don't have to listen to random commercials about the who knows what. Yay. And I don't have any financial help. Boo. So here are the asks as the trendy people say now. I'm not sure what was wrong with the word requests, but number one, keep telling folks about this podcast. Even if it's just one that you particularly cared for, tell them about that one and they might get interested in the others. Of course, keep listening. Third, and here's the commercial part, buy my books to offset the costs of the podcast. I don't talk about them much because I'm really terrible at marketing. I have several novels available on Amazon. You can look them up under Barbara G. Tucker or Barbara Graham Tucker, as in Graham Cracker, rolling my eyes, or you can ask me for signed copies. The most recent, Sudden Future by Colorful Crow Publishing would make a great Christmas gift for a reader of any age. I will have another coming out before Christmas, Long Lost Justice. Others are Bringing Abundance Back, which I call the Southern Chicklet Book, Long Lost Family, a not-so-cozy mystery, Long Lost Promise, even less cozy, I haven't figured out how murders can be cozy, and The Unexpected Christmas Visitors, a story about refugees. All are on Kindle, too. Also, I have short Bible studies. I'm not at the GoFundMe point yet. Finally, buy the books of the folks I've interviewed here or will. Luke Manjay of Ginseng Diggers, Becky Woolley, Ray Atkins, Kami Ballantyne, Devereaux Shivington Stebbins, Susan Kirkland, Renee Winchester, Carly Land, David Cady, Millicent Flake, Noah Knox Marshall, and Amber Nagel. You are a person interested in the artistic community of Chattanooga, Northwest Georgia, and beyond. Help them out. Thank you for listening to this commercial. If you go to conferences, you know, people will say, well, write what you know. Well, yeah, but <laughs> sometimes you just don't know everything you need for the book. So that's interesting that you you just interviewed, but it sounds like he really got a chance to spill his life out for you of the prisoner. Along that line, another fan asks, your novels are set in or near the fictional Sequoia, Georgia, which is... Is it in the same county as Rome, or is it in the county that's above Rome? Chattooga. Chattooga. Is it Chattooga, or is it... uh... It is a compilation of Valley Head, Alabama, where I spent my Uh former 15 years, and Somerville, Georgia, where I met and married uh, Marsha, my wife. Mm -hmm. Um, Both of them are very interesting places. Both of them are kind of different yeah. <laughs> from every place else. You know. <laughs> uh, well, so Somerville uh, spawned Howard Finster, so, you know. Yeah. That's, that's one thing you got. The Goy is sort of a compilation of a lot of little small towns, but the two I'm most familiar with are, are those two. 
Although um, Trent and Georgia kind of kind of was in my mind some with the sorrow was right. I always yes. like I always liked that Dade County uh, did not come back into the union until nineteen eighty. I mean that was just yeah, it's nuts. But it's also an amazing little piece of trivia that you got to use somewhere. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Piece of trivia I have about Ringgold, Georgia, is that when Sherman came through, he didn't burn down the courthouse like he normally would because the Masons met on the uh, top floor of the courthouse. So that's why it's still that's why. And he was a Mason. So that's why it's still there from pre-Civil War. It's 1840s. So it's quite an old building. So, yeah, it's good to know those little things. They're very helpful. So what is, is she asked, what is the relationship between the real and the fictional? How do you create a community that's like the real one, so to speak? And I think maybe what is, you know, how much of it is real, how much of it is created, imaginary, and how do you get away with it? <laughs> People don't say, you're talking about me. When I write, and you will have noticed this, my, my good guys are really, really good. Uh-huh. And my bad guys, they're not so bad. Okay. So you treat your characters with, or I treat my characters with, uh, with a little tenderness and a little care. And you only present as much of a bad light as is necessary to make the point. Mm-hmm. Even people who have found themselves being cast in the role of villain don't really object too much because yeah, I'm coming across okay. You know, the, the funny thing about writing, and, and you'll know this too, because you'll have encountered it. Uh, everybody thinks they spot themselves in whatever book you, you're promoting. And they might not be too far off in that pieces of everybody we've ever met that show up in all of what we do. So mm-hmm. I just... just Pretty much try to treat my characters like I treated my children when they, you know, give them a good name. Just for just to recap that, you said treat your children. No, sorry, treat your characters like your children. Give them a good name. I love that. The names are so important. Teach them the rules and let them do what they want. Kind of thing. Turn them loose. Turn them loose. Yes. Uh, If they start, if they start to hurt themselves, intervene. Otherwise, just let them go. Mm Hmm. To what do you attribute your sense of humor? Because I just laughed out loud this morning when I was reading Parts of Sorrow Wars. Thank you. I appreciate that. I do. I like to hear the LOL comment. <laughs> uh, if I try to be funny for you, it's like shaky green telling one liars. It's not fun. <laughs> the great humor killer is to try to be humorous. Yes. For me, it just doesn't work. I have this sardonic, a bit sarcastic kind of, I don't expect too much from the world, so I'm never really disappointed. Point of reference. It's truly how I see everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, I have constantly, my entire life, even when I was a kid, looked at what I was having to deal with and then looked at what it meant and how 
where was the irony and where was the humor in that? It has just evolved into basically my writing style or my writing style. Mm-hmm. I do find most things funny. There are some things that I don't find funny, but most things amuse me, even some things that ought not. Of course, there are some things that are taboo that will amuse nobody, but by and large, I'm pretty, you know, I, I smile and think about something I might have encountered during the day of that life. Do you think it's that you see the incongruities of things that maybe other people don't see? I do. And uh, let's face it, human beings are hilarious. We are just a riot. From from the time we wake up till the time we go to bed, it's just. And I think that the people who don't take themselves too seriously, and I don't take myself seriously at all, I think they're able to see that a little bit a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. I think we all have the potential to see the human thing. I just tend to spot it pretty quickly. And that of course just comes right through in my writing. I will tell you this though, and it, 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 it's interesting. If you get labeled as a humorous writer then you're no longer a serious writer. Mm-hmm. Even though I, I am a serious writer, I believe that I am. Mm-hmm. But when, when, when people pick up one of my books, they're looking for a funny joke killer kind of guy sometimes because they have heard that they act into the universe writer. What I am is I'm a novelist who writes in a voice. There's, there's, mm-hmm. Do you think that someone like Mark Twain, that that even affected them? Because even today, people tend to think of him as a humorist, but, humorous, but not all of his books were humorous. Yeah, I think Mark Twain, Mark Twain was a national treasure. Mm-hmm. I was once compared to Mark Twain. I don't know if you know that. Yeah. No, that, boy, that. That, boy, that boy ain't no Mark Twain, I believe, I believe the way it went. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly after Mark Wayne got older and, and life threw him all the curves mm-hmm. that threw him and it became kind of a bitter remnant of what he used to be. Even then, his humor would come through, but then it was mean humor. Yeah. Yeah. But, but no, I, th- I think I'm sure that he probably encountered that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you teach in the MFA program, and I have never been able to ask anybody this, but what is that like? Well, first off, I no longer teach in the MFA program. Oh, I'm so sorry. Okay. Well, that's but okay, you... but I, I'd be happy to talk to you about what it was like. Yeah. 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 I, was, uh, I, I scaled back a couple of years ago. They've got some really good folks on, on the faculty over there now. Mm-hmm. It's still a good place for your friends and people to grow okay. group to go. Uh, basically, it was awesome. Uh, the the, uh, the cadre that I had, the, the team, the group, um, you take them from the beginning all the way through to when they do their, when they do their piece of their portfolio. And the group of young writers, some of them were so young, some of them were not too much younger than me. And that's fine. And people of all age go. Uh-huh. Uh, but it was really a privilege to, 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 to read and comment 
men on their work. Not, most of them didn't need much in the way of uh, commentary and advice. Most of them just needed some confidence and a sympathetic ear and an opportunity to, to, to grow and to prosper. Two of the people that I taught are now published, and all of them could have been. Mm-hmm. But as you know, getting published, Sometimes the secretary to to, to write and write the long work we always want to do. Also, getting published is kind of a pain in the neck. Yes. And a lot of people don't have the patience for it. Yeah, and I wanted to come back to that. That was one of my other questions about the publishers. So, it, when you taught that, was it more or less a a seminar style where people workshopped their their or was there was there lectures? Yeah, it's a it's a low residency program. Okay. So during the fall semester and the spring semester, you get your academic courses online strictly, and then for two weeks during the summer, you go to the you go to the uh, campus. You live in one of the dorms, and yeah, it's it, it's eight hours of face to face workshopping and seminars and interesting speakers and back and forth with faculty. Um, and two years of that, and you, you've got your MFA. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming then that everybody you had was, was already pretty good. They have to present a portfolio to get in and everything, right? Yes. Uh, there were, I am used to teaching uh, freshmen and sophomores. Yes. And everybody was a freshman and a sophomore at one time. So mm-hmm. all I'm saying is that everybody was a freshman and a sophomore. Uh-huh. But yeah, the, the people who, who that I taught in the MFA program had every business being there. Okay. Uh, they, were, they were clearly the, the cut above coming in. And then what we did with them was more or less fine-tuned what they already had. Did you mostly work with novelists or short fiction? Yes. For me, mostly with novelists. Uh, The poet uh, who was on set, which was um, William Walsh, he worked Mm -hmm. with the poets. And so that everybody sort of had a specialist. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, going back to the publishing thing, you're with Mercer University Press. I went with them on uh, with with Camp Redemption, my third book. The first two that that you you mentioned earlier, they were with Medallion Press, which Mm -hmm. was a medium-sized press in Chicago. Okay. But uh, they and I uh, parted ways. That third book, and I found Mercer, and I've been happy with them. Like they are really, they are really author centric. They they, they try to take care of their authors. Yeah, Medallion's out of business now, isn't it? They are out of business, but uh, I left them prior to that. Yeah. Uh, With Camp Redemption, which was my third, in which they had accepted and agreed to publish. Uh, they changed their business model, and they intended to, instead of doing what I wanted, which was a, a conventional hardcover release, which is what the other two 
say we're going to go with a, a strictly electronic platform. Oh. I didn't, want to do, I didn't want to do that. Oh, yeah. That's a big so, difference. Okay. Luckily, luckily, my paperwork was in order, and I didn't have to do that. So. Mm -hmm. so how do you see the relationship between the between the the publisher and the editor and the author? Well, the thing that, that I came to realize somewhere along the line was that basically we have opposing points of view, but I don't mean that in a bad way. Mm -hmm. I don't want to explain what I mean. Uh, from my side of the, of, the, of the equation, I want my words to get out there and to be read by as many people um, as we'll read them, and I want to hear about some laugh out loud. And maybe if I get a payday, that'll be great too. From the publisher standpoint, it is a business proposition. They're in this to make money, which mm -hmm. means they have to spend less than they take in. So it's two diametrically opposed points of view to go into. Having said that, I've been very, very happy with Mercer University Press. Mm -hmm. They don't seem to worry too much about is this book going to make money or are we paying too much for this or... Once they've agreed to to, to uh, put a book out, they bend over backwards to make it just the release that the author's looking for. Mm -hmm. um, they do a great cover. They use uh, high-quality paper. Uh, their editing staff is, 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 is very sympathetic, very amazing. And, I, and I'm, I have always been happy with what came out. Mm -hmm. when the time came. Yeah. So you have five, five with them with Mercer. I've got four with them, four. and they're looking at they're looking at one right now. Okay. Okay. So it's a book of poetry, so I have no idea how that's going to go. I just <laughs> I have I have stepped outside of my comfort zone. Yeah. I understand <laughs> that with your editor. What's that relationship? Do you, you know, is it? My early experiences with Andrew at the medallion was a bit adversarial, but mm. towards the common goal of we want to put out a good book, oh yeah, we want to make a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. But at Mercer, it, it is a very, very good book. I'm mm. editor for all four of my books with that. She is a champ. She uh, yeah. she does really good work. And if something needs to be changed, or she has no problem saying, "You just knocked me all the way out of the narrative without something. Would you like to do something about that?" <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would. As a matter of fact, let me. <laughs> that is very that's very constructive. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, what is your process? How much do you write every day? Is that a stupid question? <laughs> you get up at five and write for three hours. You know these these kind of people. I usually write first thing because uh, if I try to write after I have uh, hot and graded all day, I'm kind of mentally tired. Yeah, yeah. So because 
the writing. I want it to be the most creative and the most interesting it can be. I tend to do it first. I've always been an early riser, mm-hmm. uh, thanks to my years of shift work. So, usually get out about five and then uh, get all woke up and have coffee. And by seven, I'm usually at my desk and I write 300 words. Mm. That's all. Wow. <laughs> but I'm a, I'm a very slow writer, and I edit as I go, and those okay. 300 words are keepers. Okay. So well, that's not very much, and my response is always, that is a novel year. Mm-hmm. People, I have, one of the things I used to tell my students um, in the MFA program was, if you write, Right, 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 right. Until you got nothing left to say. First off, you you written yourself up in the corner, and it's going to be very hard to start tomorrow where you left off. Mm-hmm. And the second thing I told tell them is that you want to leave something so that it kind of can ferment and work a little bit, kind of like yeast, uh, if you're making bread, so that when you sit down to write tomorrow, you've got some material to work with. Mm-hmm. So for me, at least, 300 hours, you know, if I'm just in, in the zone, maybe 400, but I don't write a lot every day, but the, but for me, the consistency is important. I make sure I do it every day until the book is And usually mm-hmm. when that book is finished, it doesn't need much because I, I work on it as I go, which is... Mm-hmm diametrically opposed to what you should do, but that's just what I do. Mm-hmm. I don't work from an outline. No. I don't. I jot down the few things that I'm afraid I might forget, and the rest of it just kind of happens as it happens. So I guess you might say I free write a great bit. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So you don't have a, a detailed outline, but you do have something in your head that's of where you're going with this. Yeah. yeah, I know where I am. I know where I want to end up. Mm-hmm. I know who the players are. But what actually happens from here to there is sometimes even a surprise to me. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that's that, that's probably the most fun part of the whole thing. Is that, uh-huh. Again, it's kind of like uh, what children. You know, it, it, sometimes they don't do what you expect. But they do what they would have done, mm-hmm. and that's, that's what you want your characters to do too. For me, I know I've got a character fully developed. When after I type something that that character did, I stop and I think, "Well, he wouldn't have said that." Then <laughs> you know that that fictional construct has become real, mm-hmm. and then you learn about them. So they'll take care of themselves the rest of the story. So, so when you start writing and you write your first chapter, the first chapter is not going to change very much. It's not going to change much at all because that that's got to be anchored. That's yeah, be my starting point. It's also it also tends to be a very very strong piece of writing, and it needs to be um, getting back to the marketability or the the uh, the dollar value of the book. 
the strongest sentence in the whole book needs to be your first sentence of the first paragraph of the first paragraph of the because that's what you that's your window. Uh -huh. If somebody reads that and wants to read the second sentence, you got them. Yeah. But if somebody reads that first sentence and says, ah, this is going to be a tough read, mm -hmm. there's a million other choices right up there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you don't necessarily start with action, but you just start with something very, that you know is going to pull them in. Yeah. And, and it's usually a vivid image. It's, it's very seldom like a chase scene or something like that. It's yeah, usually, right. I like the long, slow reveal. I don't, uh -huh. I'm, I'm very Faulknerian in that respect. Yes, I, that, that struck me. For example, I'm going to read the first sentence of Sarwood. Wendell Blackman considered the dead dog lying before him and wiped his sweating brow with a white handkerchief pulled from his back pocket. It's a very strong image, you know. You, we don't know who Wendell is, but, you know, or why he's looking at this dog, but we definitely have a, oh, okay. I'm going to read one more sentence anyway to find out what's going on with the dog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He looked a bit incongruous producing the starched hanky like a teamster holding up a pinky as he slurped coffee at the trust. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, and then you go into a description of him that's very vivid. And so we see what this fellow looks like. We, we're not at any we're not at any um, pains to, you know, any mystery about how we can visualize this this person who is obviously very important to the story or you wouldn't put him on the first sentence. So that being the case, there was another question I was going to ask you in this. I have been to it's the reason I bring that up is I, I go and listen to a lot of people tell you how to write a novel. And then I think if you people ever really read any good literature, <laughs> they're they're coming at it from the sell something. You know, it's yeah. usually genre fiction. It's not literary fiction. And so they'll say, oh, you got to have a chase scene. You got to have a, a gunshot. You got to have something at the beginning. They would say, don't start with a description of your character's being or or whatever, but show them doing. And. I can I can see that in some cases, but, you know, that that's not how really, really good writing starts. And the other was I heard somebody say, write your first. I hear so much bad advice. Write your first three chapters and then throw them away. And I said, I don't have time for this. <laughs> you know, why would you have written them? Well, them there's bound to be some good stuff in those three chapters. Else I know. You would not have remembered it long enough to write it down. Yeah. Never throw my advice is never throw away anything. Yeah, that's why you'll, you'll use it. Right. Yeah. So, like I'm saying, you know, as someone who t has taught creative writing, taught uh, novel writing, and and is obviously successful, you some of the things you hear from people, it's like, have you really ever read? Have you do really read very much <laughs> of what the good stuff is? You know, you you really wonder. Um, well, I'm. When it comes to, first off, I tend to read and, and listen to people. When they, like Stephen King is an example. He uh, he wrote, wrote a book about how to be a great writer, and I, I think he's a great writer. He's certainly a cultural phenomenon, and there's some good stuff in his in, in his book about uh, how he does it. And that's my point. Is 
for everybody who writes, there's a right way for them, but there are a million different ways to do it. Yes. And I want you got to you got to take this this method from this writer and this technique from this writer, and you have to cobble together your own little set of things that work for you. Mm -hmm. Because we're all different. And me writing three chapters and throwing them away, that's nuts. Those, those, yeah. That might become three books before it's over with. Right, right. <laughs> okay. Um, so, do you have anything else you want to say to our listeners who are other people trying to understand the arts and writing and creativity and stuff like that? Uh, don't give up. Don't pay attention to unkind editors. Or unkind potential agents who send you hateful mail. Because a lot of times when you send something off and you get back, and this has actually happened to me way back, but I wanted to, because it, it impacted me. I didn't write for a year between my second and third book because I got a really, really hateful response to a query letter. I was like, well, I must suck that bad then. Because this mm -hmm. person was a professional. <laughs> and it turns out uh, she just was having a bad day, and the next person I signed off to took it. So pay attention to your inner heart. Read a lot, write. Don't worry about whether it's good. Don't try to make it profound. God, no, don't. And the, the worst writing I've ever done is writing that I was trying to make important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just let the words speak for themselves. If they're great, the Pulitzer Committee will discover them. If they're <laughs> not great, they're still out there. Yeah. Uh, and don't take okay. yourself too seriously. Uh, yeah. Just, you know, just remember, we're, we're just all fucking along here. Mm -hmm. So did you <laughs> oh, use... Yay, Dalton State. Do you use... An agent? Did, have you you've always had an agent? No, I, I do not. I've never had an agent when I sold a book. I've had oh, a couple yeah. agents and, and never, ever managed to, to sell one with an agent. So like oh. I am unagented. I'm also relatively unknown, so you can kind of make whatever correlation you want to there. Hmm. I will say this for those who, who, who want to go to New York. If you want to go to New York, you're going to have to have an agent. Right. But, yeah. you know, I'm 68 years old. I'm happy. Mm -hmm. you know, if something like that were to happen, that'd be fine. But I've been to New York. So. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, go Dalton State. <laughs> <laughs> I just threw that out there for you. Thank you. We appreciate it. <laughs> I don't talk about it too much on the podcast, but I have, I do a little bit. So we've been listening to our conversation with Ray Atkins of Rome, Georgia area. So we've been talking about writing and publishing and creativity. Thank you very much, Ray. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye everyone. <laughs>